You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. So five of the eight species of tuna are endangered. All species of tuna. When you look at the bluefin, the Atlantic bluefin's endangered. What can they teach us? So they're considered partially endothermic, which once again just like blew my mind. I, because yeah, so the bluefin tuna, for example. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Okay, I'm going to open up on why our listeners need to stick with this episode. You know, you think of just, oh, tuna, a fish. Okay, not very interesting. No, this, especially this species, this is an incredible fish with an incredible story, especially with what's going on in the world. You know, Seaspiracy, these other documentaries talking about how tuna are endangered. It's going to be an amazing episode. Oh, yeah, Chris. And full disclosure, you and I are not fish scientists, ichthyologists, I think. There you go. There you go. Uh, But I think that's what, for me, made this even more fun, uh, studying the past two weeks, because we've had extra time knowing this was out of my comfort zone. I've, I've been doing a lot of research, and I've just been fascinated. Bluefin tuna are the largest of all the tunas, they can live up to 40 years and their size will blow you out of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it, it was, it's just been amazing. I watched, I've watched multiple documentaries, just reading the literature. So stay tuned. And hopefully if you're not already aware of what's going on with bluefin tuna or just even falling in love with their physiology, uh, from an, from a behavior point of view, a physiologist point of view, they're just incredible incredible fish and we're back in the ocean this week and it's going to be a good ride yeah no and i mean what why did one sell for three million dollars you know it, it, we're going to talk about why you know a single fish sold for that and that is why all the fish in the blue fin tuna group are heading towards extinction because these fish are so valuable and they are so rare so we're definitely going to get into that today yes and we'll also talk about the tuna's third eye Mm-hmm. <laughs> which of course I went in a deep dive, like, what is this? I need to know more. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to behavior and their migration patterns. Uh, but just, I mean, just an incredible, incredible, gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeous fish. No, it is. It is. It, before we jump into that real quick, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Angie and I are, are going to be putting out some special content here very soon. Just a reminder for one cup of coffee a month, you support us, you support conservation. Uh, at the end of this month, covering all the species in the ocean, we'll put up a poll on which organization to support and we send you know, a portion of our funds to them, but thank you so much for supporting us. And then also remember, you know, we've had some past content that we've been putting on there for the last few years. So, so if you join, you can go back and and look at some of that stuff. Yeah. There's lots of good content on there and we're going to be producing some more for our Patreon listeners. 
And I want to give a big shout out to Taco Knowles 94, who gave us a great review on iTunes asking for sharks. And I hope Taco Nicole... Taco Knowles 94 is happy because we just pushed out two shark episodes. We had episode uh, 235 uh, about the great hammerhead shark, which was an amazing, fun Mm -hmm. episode. I learned a lot. And then episode 236 is with Dr. David Schiffman, who is a shark conservationist, specialist biologist, an incredible interview all about what is happening to sharks in our ocean and why we should care about them. So hopefully, uh, Taco Knowles 94 that, uh, hopefully you appreciated those and trust me, sharks are on my mind more. So look for more, more species of fish in general. Um, getting, I'm getting a little bit more comfortable with them (laughs) as far as their biology goes and their behavior is just incredible. So, uh, yes, but anyways, please drop us another five-star review on iTunes. You can request species and, or send us an email or join our Facebook group on all creatures podcast. No, Angie, the going back and, you know, updating the website and everything with the great hammerhead, it's just an incredible species. I we definitely will cover another shark before next July of 2022. But yes, we are not waiting until Shark Week 2022 to yes, cover more. No, we will, we will. There's so many of them out no, there. No, and that- Dr. Schiffman was very uh, helpful in giving me some ideas of who else I should talk to about mm. uh, shark conservation. So I'm going to be reaching out to some of those groups as well. Well, yeah, and I mean it's just anything with the oceans. It's just it's so it, important. It's so- it is. And so looking at bluefin tuna, this episode, what's going on with overfishing, things like that, we're going to get there. But first describing the bluefin, you're right. It is gorgeous. And watching all those documentaries that you've sent me, watching them swim, watching them catch them, tag them, release them. It, they're They're beautiful. They're beautiful fish. Oh, yes. I mean, they're just, well, their colors, first and foremost, are incredible. Uh, Bluish on top, white to silvery on the bottom. They have that counter shading that we've talked about before with uh, sharks and rays and things like that. Um, But they're a very streamlined fish. You can just tell that they're built for speed, like little bullets. Mm -hmm. And the head on bluefin tuna is cone or conical shaped. And they have a, a larger mouth compared to other tunas, which uh, throughout this podcast, we'll talk about uh, the different species of tuna and where bluefin and yellowfin, how they're related and where they fall into the different categories. But with bluefin tuna, they have their dorsal fin along the top. So they have two that are closely spaced to each other uh, along its back. And the first one can be like laid down. And then after the second one, the bluefin has about seven to 10 yellow finlets, they're called, which I just is a new vocabulary for me. Uh, they're, they're like these, they're small fins that almost look like uh, triangles sticking outside of their body uh, for lack of lack of better terms, but they are, they are fins. They, they help, I think, with their streamline movement through the water. And so these seven to 10 yellow finlets that are both on the dorsal And then there's also the finlets on the ventral or the bottom uh, area of the fish that go basically from the second dorsal fin all the way to the tail. And the tail on the bluefin 
tuna, I think to help with their speed and their swimming is uh, like a sea, a little sea or a crescent moon shape. So I think all of that just helps them be just this really streamlined fish uh, with, yeah, the beautiful blue-gray color on top and shimmery silvery white on the bottom. So you you can't can't, uh, miss a tuna, right, when Mm -hmm. they're swimming by, Mm -hmm. especially a large bluefin. No, it, it, they are beautiful and beautiful and, and, and form to function. We'll get to why they are streamlined like that. Like the calm, you know, every description I've read is torpedo shaped. So it is very important that they're, that they're, they've evolved that way because mm-hmm. of their distance that they swim, but they're huge. These are massive fish and I don't know if people really could appreciate how big they are. I didn't. I, no. Hands down. I mean, I'll throw myself under the bus. I had no idea, Chris. If you would have asked me, I'd been like, oh, I don't know, like 100 pounds or something. No, no. <laughs> no. no, because of the the three specific bluefin tuna, you know, we'll talk about the bluefin group genre, but of bluefin tuna, there you have the Atlantic, Pacific, and Southern the three, the three big ones, the Atlantic is the largest and they can get up to 13 feet in length and weigh up to 2000 pounds. That is enormous. <laughs> yeah, for fish. That's, it's crazy. Right. That's, I had no, no idea. Uh, it's just in general. Now, of course, because of fishing, which we're going to talk a lot about in this podcast, uh, they average between Four or five hundred pounds mm-hmm. uh, are the lar- large ones that they're pulling up in six to eight feet uh, right. because they're not really hitting that maturity to get up to fifteen hundred or two thousand pounds. But right. but the largest recorded specimen uh, that I was reading about of an, an Atlantic bluefin tuna mm-hmm. was uh, f- over fourteen hundred pounds or uh, almost six hundred eighty kilograms mm-hmm. and was twelve feet long. That was recognized by the National Marine Fisheries Service in the United States and the Smithsonian Institution that species, if they're allowed to fully mature, can get up over 2,000 pounds or yeah, 910 kilograms. That's huge. I mean, that's large shark size. Like, it, it's big. Mm-hmm. That is a big fish. It is a very big fish. Now, of these three species of bluefin tuna, so the Atlantic ranges in the northern Atlantic and Mediterranean. So above the equator, they're in temperate waters. They're they're not tropical, subtropical, yes, but not tropical, and obviously not Arctic or Antarctic. It's too cold or too hot, which we'll get into because we'll talk about them being warm-blooded fish, which is insane. That blew my mind. That that was about <laughs> a two-hour detour. Yes, yes. <laughs> this week. How they do it, why, you know, again, form and function. The Pacific, the Northern Pacific above the equator. Okay. Then you have the Southern population, which is south of the equator. Most oceans, so South Atlantic, South Indian, some in the Pacific, the Eastern Pacific over by South America, very rare for tuna to get over there. So off the New Zealand coast here with me, off Australia. You know, and then watching that that one documentary you shared, where their their spawning grounds was what near Java, mm-hmm. and most of them go out in the Indian Ocean, but some do come here up near me in the Tasman Sea, and uh, and some head west toward uh, the Indian Ocean and even towards uh, the Atlantic. 
Right. Yeah. Southern Atlantic. And then some do get out into the Pacific, but, but not really, that's not really where they're found. So, so found in pretty much all the oceans worldwide. So Angie, when, when we jump into why care about tuna, it, I mean, obviously individually for us, it, you know, it's a major f- food source for, for not only us, but, but many people worldwide, they're heading towards extinction, but these are, are critical animals in our oceans ecosystem. Oh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, bluefin tuna can be considered a keystone species. Uh, They're a top predator uh, amongst the ocean or the marine food chain. So they're really critical in maintaining a balance in these deep ocean environments. Uh, They will talk about what they eat, but they eat a lot of smaller fish, squid, jellyfish, things like this. So without bluefin tuna, the system would be off and we'd probably see a rise in those smaller fish and jellyfish and squid and things like this. So it's just, they're, they're really important part of the marine environment. And, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, their numbers and how the stocks have just been horrifically depleted in the past 50 years or so. No, and that's kind of, that's the deep rabbit hole I went down, you know, being that we, we spent some extra time and I went and, and, read a lot of reports, looked into this as far as overfishing and then the impacts of, of tuna. I know in a, a recent episode, I mentioned my family are all tuna fishermen on my mom's side. So grew up with them, grew up going to their house, having tuna steak, swordfish, other things they've caught in the ocean. If I really date my family back, you were some of the founders of Starkist Tuna in California you know, over a hundred years ago, when my relatives came over from Croatia, all fishermen, this is my family. This is what we did. And tuna have been overfished for decades now. And today, so in 2021, tuna is still very much prized by restaurants around the world, specifically bluefin tuna mm-hmm. and really with sushi, sushi and sashimi. Yes, and sure, and of course, it should be probably pointed out that bluefin tuna is not going to be the found the kind of tuna that's found in cans. And when we talk about all the different species of bluefin tuna versus yellowfin tuna versus other uh, family members of tuna, it becomes clear that bluefin tuna is just far far too valuable. Um, It's prized in Japan. That's probably the largest market for it. I think Japan Mm -hmm. consumes about eighty percent of Mm -hmm. the world's bluefin. It's a Mm -hmm. delicacy there. It's an important part of Japanese identity and culture. And as Chris mentioned, a single bluefin, especially a large one, can sell for tens, thousands, if not millions of dollars. Uh, In Australia alone, uh, just the bluefin tuna market is worth over a hundred million. So it's, it's really a, it's a prized catch and it's not, it's, it's not just your average tuna for lack of better terms. And, uh, but because of this, the stocks have been depleted by about 85% of the historical data that, uh, has been take has been collected. So 85%, um, and they are struggling. They are endangered. All the Atlantic Pacific and Southern are all endangered and on the brink of extinction. 
But there is good news, and we'll talk about that throughout the podcast too, because tuna in general, and especially bluefin tuna, are so important to economies and culture um, as a food source that uh, there's been a lot of attention attention to to conserving them and to mm-hmm. making sure they don't become extinct. And uh, but it's a really really complex in uh, issue because the bluefin tuna, regardless of which species you're talking about, they're they cross international waters. They're not just found off the coast of Florida or off the coast of uh, the UK or off the coast of Australia. So there's really been a global global effort and a lot of rules and policy made by governments um, to try to help regu- regulate the industry for the bluefin tuna fisheries, uh, the commercial fisheries that is, but it's, it's still, it's very, very complex. And, uh, it's not, from my understanding, it's not a hundred percent sustainable at this point. No, no, it's not. And it, it's, that will become clear here when I put some of this data. So five of the eight species of tuna are endangered, all species of tuna. When you look at the bluefin, the Atlantic bluefin's endangered, the Pacific bluefin is threatened, and the southern bluefin is critically endangered. So when you talked about that, now, like you said, it is prized. So there was a perfect 600-pound bluefin tuna that sold for $3 million in 2019. It's crazy. In Japan, bluefin tuna sells for about $200 per pound, and it's Pacific bluefin. In the U.S., it's upwards of $40 per pound for Atlantic bluefin. Now, a, a piece of sushi that you can go in a restaurant, you know, say in New York City, will cost you around $80 American, okay, U.S. currency. And the sushi chefs, when they talked to them, said, you know, to quote them, said, bluefin's the most sought after. It has intense marbling, so a lot of that fat. Mm-hmm. And then when they age the fish, it has this balance of flavors that people really love. So there's a huge demand. Now we know stocks of the Atlantic bluefin are down about 80% across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. The Pacific's vulnerable. They're just at 2.6% of their historical range, the Pacific bluefin. Now the peak of tuna was in the 1990s because there was this push and I'm going to talk about it to conserve them. And I really dove and and it took me about two hours to read this, but it was the UN report that was published last year on the state of the world's fisheries and aquaculture. And it was very, very interesting read because we, 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 you know, we have talked about the documentaries that are out there, the sea spiracies. And I really want to know what the truth is. What's Mm -hmm. the data showing? Reports are indicating you know, from the report in 2018 to 2020, that overfishing has increased across the world's oceans, across fish. It was from 33% in 2018 to 34% in 2020. And it's estimate about 2.7 trillion fish are caught every year to, to feed the world. You know, it's to feed That's billions. trillion with a T. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a lot of fish. Now, tuna specifically, in the data we have in 2019, there was 5.3 million tons of commercial tuna reported. 
60% of that was skipjack, which I'm going to say just upfront is one of my conservation tips of the week. That is this, the, the most sustainable population of tuna we have mm-hmm. is skipjack tuna. And that's what we find in our cans at and or albacore, correct? Mostly, yes. Albacore mm-hmm. is is next what you see in the U.S. And that that is because the fisheries in the United States that catch albacore tuna can heavily regulated can those are sustainable populations but across the globe albacore is not sustainable what's going on so skipjack was 60% yellowfin was 28% big eye was 7% and albacore was 4% so bluefin specifically is 1% of the global catch of tuna each year of tuna 65% of the stocks are at a healthy level of abundance meaning it's sustainable that the populations aren't being depleted. And that's all the species combined? Of all the species of tuna. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pacific bluefin is not being fished at sustainable levels, according to this report. So they are still in decline. The Atlantic and Southern bluefin species are at sustainable or growing in their population. Okay. So I know in that documentary that you sent me, they did talk about the Southern bluefin, especially around Australia, mm-hmm. their populations are increasing because these fisheries are carefully managed. They can only take out so many per year. Yeah. The good news with, uh, in Australia with the Southern bluefin tuna is their stocks are reduced to about 5% of their historic mm-hmm. numbers by the nineties. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. they're like treading down that road to extinction, but a lot of cooperation between Australia, New Zealand, and of course, Japan, um, and putting many regulations in place and different policies. The population is up to 13% of its historical mm-hmm. records. So it's, it's not out of the weeds yet, but uh, it's definitely starting to bounce back. And a lot of that has to do with scientists, environmentalists, mm-hmm. commercial fishermen, and even hobbyist uh, fishermen working together and uh, really doing a push to help educate people. And of course, they are doing some open ocean farmed southern bl- bluefin tuna as well. Right, right. Yeah, no, so it's been good. And this all started, the conservation of tuna, like you, we said, it, it peaked in the 90s. It was in the early 2000s when NGOs began to push to protect tuna. They were like, okay, this we're going to overfish this species to extinction. And in 2007, the international bodies implemented a 15-year conservation plan, reduced quotas for fisheries, so they can only bring in so much tuna and sell it to market, and the stocks have improved. And among the, the seven main tuna species fished, According to this latest report, 66.6% of their stocks were fished at sustainable levels in 2017, which is an increase of 10% in two years. So it's improving. It's not there. There's still much more improvement needed, but it is there. Now, overall fish consumption has increased in the last 60 years almost by 3%. So that is a, a, a rate twice of the global population growth of 1.6%. Uh, 
So, and it's even more than animal, other animal protein, like, you know, meat, dairy, you know, uh, red meat, mm-hmm. chicken, things, poultry, all that. So fish demand is, is up globally, worldwide. And that's why we're starting to see our, 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 our oceans. And it's good that we're, we're talking about it, right? The big increase has been through developed countries. That is where, like in the United States, fish consumption has gone up because it's healthier, right? We, we have sure. this view it's healthier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, I'm going to try to wrap up this report because there's so much good data in there. Yes. And it's Give us so- the cliff notes. You did, it is, <laughs> you it did is. a two-hour uh, long version. Dive. But I want people to... It's I want so the important. Listeners- yeah, there's yeah, a lot to- of there's a lot of information out there and it's hard to sort through all of it. It is. And, and where are we with overfishing? Like the, the bottom line is we, we are still overfishing the ocean, certain populations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean everybody needs to stop eating fish. And that's what my friends told me. Pip told me, you know, after watching Seaspiracy, oh, we're going to just stop eating fish. That's not the answer because you're going to turn around and, and, and eat Well, that's more an answer meats. for of privilege, right? I think- Our personal uh, choice, if- yeah. Yeah, or, or privilege. I think that if if you are able, if you are are living comfortably enough to be able to get uh, a well balanced protein from non animal sources, and you don't need to eat fish, uh, then more power to you. Personal choice to each their own. But there's so many people um, in developing countries where that's not an option. Like that's how they get their most, their main source of protein and, and their livelihood. And they're not, and you know, these are not typically commercial fishermen by, by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of them are just small, smaller fishing boats. But so I, yeah, I don't think that's a very realistic answer for all people. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's a certain choice if you want to reduce your consumption or, I like to say, be smart and vote with your dollar and educate yourself. Like you mentioned, if you are going to eat tuna, definitely go for the skipjack and look Mm -hmm. for it to be sustainably fished um, versus eating bluefin bluefin tuna, right? Yeah. The most fish species is anchovy by far. That is the, the the number one fish taken out of the ocean. Then Alaska Pollock. And see, then... I'll pass that one. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> that one is not a problem. No, thank you. I'm yeah. saving the anchovies left and right because I, no, thank you. It's the number one fish fished in the ocean. And then Skipjack Tuna was Gosh, three. my grandfather, my, my grandpa Hamlin always tried to get me to eat it, um, like saltines or whatever. And I just, anchovies. I, I never could develop a palate for it. No, 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 no. But but I know many many people do, and and, yeah. and many cultures do. So, but that's interesting, Chris. I had no idea yeah. it was sardines. Yeah, they're number one. Then Alaskan Pollock, skipjack tuna was three. Atlantic mm. herring was four. Blue whiting five, and they have the whole list. Yellowfin tuna was like seven. Okay, but the bluefin was nowhere on there. Really quickly, the good stuff, Angie is aquaculture is answering the demand and it is growing. It is something I think we need to look more into, maybe bring an expert in that yes. can talk about it mm-hmm. and educate our, our, our listeners on what exactly is going on with aquaculture. What are some of the myths that that documentary put out there? And aquaculture is growing leaps and bounds. And it's, it's 
2018, nearly 180 million tons of fish were produced for aquaculture, and that made up half of fish consumed mm-hmm. worldwide. So it, it is it is booming. China is leading the way with aquaculture to feed their population. Interestingly enough, Peru was two, and most of it Go was Peru, anchovies. <laughs> it was anchovies. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're they're raising anchovies for everybody. Uh, Indonesia, Russia, U.S. was was in that that list. So you go all the way down. But what it has done, as the demand has increased for fish, it has flattened out wild caught populations the last thirty years. And that that increased demand has been met by increase in aquaculture. So bluefin tuna is one of those that is being fished. I watched a whole documentary in Japan on it. Mm -hmm. The problem is you talk to this sushi chef in New York and he says, oh, nobody likes the farm raised bluefin tuna because it tastes like anchovies because they feed them anchovies. It gets in the fat and they can taste it. So interesting. We've got to change consumers that, I'm sorry, if you want bluefin tuna, wild, you cannot eat wild bluefin tuna. It's just, it is horrible for the, it, it's horrible. You know, the farm raised. Well, yeah, and you feel, I feel like they could years. come up with another, um, this is the nutritionist and me working right, right. out, but I feel like they could come up with an, potentially another type of feed source or a food source. I don't know that for sure. Um mm-hmm. Uh, what did my father always say? He, uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. So mm-hmm. if we don't want the tuna to taste like uh, sardines, we can yes. potentially figure out a different feeder fish or uh, something uh, to, to to help them grow. Uh, of course, that's way out of my. Uh, uh, you know, when they tell you to stay in your lane, that's definitely not right. in my not right. my lane. So I don't want to get anybody in aquaculture upset with me. But it's just th- things like that, like the young people thinking outside the box, and that that's what we need for plastic right now. There's too much plastics mm-hmm. in our ocean. Why can't we make more plastic out of plants that decomposes a lot faster and doesn't mm-hmm. last hundreds and hundreds of years in landfills or in the oceans? So we need some of the out, some of that out of box thinking, and then we also need data data-driven mm-hmm. science. And so I, as much as that sous chef uh, may say that the public really thinks that about mm-hmm. uh, farmed bluefin tuna, I, put some data behind it. Let's pull people. I mean, are you, I mean, I'd rather have bluefin tuna that maybe doesn't taste slightly different than no bluefin tuna at all. Right. right. Uh, right. especially in J- Japan where it's really important for, like I said, their culture and identity and things like this. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, there's going to have to be a little bit of ebb and flow and give and take. It's a really, really interesting concept. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole about tuna and it being fish just because not coming from a, a long line of commercial fishermen. My my grandpa Hamlin, he was um, a Lake Michigan fisher, just a uh, perch and walleye and that kind that kind of stuff. And so I've been on the water with him before, but you know nothing commercial. So with tuna, watching these documentaries, I got really fascinated about like all the different ways that they're caught. And in general, with bluefin tuna. They are fished with a method called persine. I'm probably saying that wrong, so I apologize. Persine, persine. And that's basically a large net is used to like encircle the school of tuna. And it it targets more like skipjack and things like that, ones that are for like 
can of tuna that are more for canned fish, not as high quality. Uh, long line is another one. Uh, and that's where they're, the vessel uses a long line that stretches out for like miles and there's hooks on it and they sink really, the hooks sink really down deep. And then there's a type of fishing for Atlantic bluefin tuna called Phoenician. And that's used more in like Spain and Portugal. It's like a, it's like a maze of nets. Uh, and as Chris mentioned, there's also, of course, uh, aquaculture, farm fishing, uh, harpoon guns are sometimes used. So there's several different, different methods. Um, but the purse and the, the purseine and the long line are typically, uh, some of the, the more popular ones. And of course, tuna in general can be fished to buy, uh, big game fishing boats and the hobbyist as well. No, it's 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 the stuff's interesting. I will definitely add it to our website. That documentary you sent, how they they catch these tuna because they're warm blooded, which we're about to get to. When we get to physiology, they have to put them on ice immediately. You know, they put them in brine. They are, yeah, they're, they're high maintenance. I had no yeah. no idea. I mean, I've usually yeah. put fish on ice, but this is like really critical because uh, the, with the it will ruin tuna. the meat. It will spoil yeah. the meat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, of course, as I was like looking through the bluefin tuna, how they're caught, what that means, the populations. It's just the scientists and me, I always have to, in order to move forward, I sometimes have to take like five steps back to understand the bigger picture. But it got me thinking, okay, well, these are the methods, but can't they be improved? Or how how do we, how do we implement the policies that, oh, you can only take this many pounds or this many fish and things like that, that have been done internationally for the bluefin tuna, but how is it working? And so with the conservation of the bluefin tuna, the biggest thing I kept reading over and over is that we're only going to save our oceans and the fishes that stock them with good data. And over and over again on this podcast, you and I always talk about how we are all about the numbers. And so fishermen and governments aren't providing uh, numbers for scientists, it's really hard for them to manage the activity and to also project and make models about how much stock can be pulled out of the ocean to keep the population in balance or happy. So time and time again, even with all the regulations that are implemented in certain, in most international areas, there still is a lot that needs to be done. And so one thing that rings clear is more and more transparency with the numbers. And so a lot of um, long line vessels and commercial fishermen, they actually have observers that are on board um, to help make sure that the numbers are correct of what they're, uh, of what the fishermen are pulling in and how much they weigh and all the different things. Right. Uh, but in general, scientists keep saying that we need more of that. And, it doesn't necessarily have to even be like a human, like a human, like a, like a five people on a boat. Uh, a lot of this could be done with like cameras and things like mm-hmm. that. And a lot, and some of the vessels do have uh, cameras aboard them that are helping um, collect all the data and and helping keep records. Right, we need records to help keep this data. No, absolutely. I mean, that in that one documentary you showed, they did have the cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, going 24 seven, the boats are satellite tracked. 
So, you know, these fisheries are being regulated. It, oh, it, it, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so when you buy sustainable tuna, things like that, you, you can feel comfortable. But again, there is a lot of, uh, you know, this pirating that's going on with fishing that that we don't see uh, with it. But yeah, I mean, the, the overall take-home message is tuna are in trouble, but they are improving. And there are a lot of governments around the, the, the planet that are fighting hard to preserve these animals. So, so it, it, you should feel good about, you know, tuna improving, right? So it's Absolutely. not like, oh, I'm just going to stop eating tuna, which again, it's a personal choice, but there are sustainable fish that you can feel comfortable eating mm-hmm. or tuna that you can eat. Just not bluefin. I'm sorry. I just wouldn't pay. <laughs> I would pay eighty dollars for a piece of sushi, knowing that there's not many of these fish left on on Earth. Exactly. Well said. All right. Let's race through evolution because we got a lot of physiology that that's really amazing. The bluefin tuna are from the class Actinoperygii. This is the ray-finned fishes, the bony fishes. Ninety-nine percent of the over thirty thousand fish species belong to this class. The order is Scombriforms. There's still some debate, again, always debate, with, especially with genetics, uh, but about nine families within that. Now, tuna belong to the mackerel family. Then you get into tribes. So again, this classification gets a little, little, it's a little uh, wonky. Yeah, it does. Especially, right, fish, I don't. Right? I mean, it's just out of my comfort zone. Right, fish. The the classification with fish is crazy. So the tribe is Thunini. These are the tunas. Now, there's five genre within that tribe. You have the slender tunas, the frigate tunas, the little tunas, the skipjack tunas, then this true tunas genre, the thunnus genre. And then within that, you have the bluefin group and the yellowfin group. You're doing great, Chris. I know. Just... <laughs> A plus plus. So within that, you have albacore tuna, southern bluefin tuna, big eye tuna, Pacific bluefin tuna, Atlantic bluefin tuna. Yes, in that's thunus, in the in the bluefin group. In the bluefin group, right? So albacore, big eye tuna aren't bluefin, but they're in that genre. So they're they're, they're very closely related. All of them endangered. Albacore's near threatened. Southern, I said, critically endangered. Uh, Big Eye's vulnerable. Pacific Bluefin's vulnerable. And then Atlantic's endangered. And then Chris, just to add to that, and the yellowfin group uh, is the blackfin tuna, which is least concern, the longtail tuna. Uh, we don't have data on that. And the yellowfin tuna, which I'm sure many people who eat sushi are familiar with, uh, and that is near threatened. Right. right. Heading towards extinction. I mean, just, you know, it's tough. Now, fish evolution is, again, we've covered this a little bit, but I mean, some of the the first vertebrates were fish, came out of the ocean 530 million years ago. Then you had the Cambrian explosion, which lasted close to 30 million years. These are when a lot of animals began to populate our oceans. The bony fish evolved about 420 million years ago. Again, like what I said with the sharks, there were fish in the ocean before there were trees on land, mm-hmm. which is nuts. Now, what we know of tuna is didn't really evolve until after that fifth mass extinction. 
So 55, 60 million years ago is because imagine a lot, you know, that, that mass extinction, 80% close. I think it was close to 80% during that one. It was like 70 something percent died off. Right. That includes oceans and land. Crazy. Right. So then as the earth began to recover, species began to emerge, tuna's ancestors emerged with that. The true tunas didn't emerge until about 10 million years ago. And that's your bluefin and yellowfin. Right, right, right. So that's that's evolution in a nutshell, but they've been around for a long time, millions and millions of years. They've evolved to be not only massive, but to be fast. So fast. Yeah. I mean, you can swim up to, what, 43 miles an hour, 70 kilometers per hour? Yeah. The southern bluefin tuna, that's the fastest, and that's about 47 miles per hour or 75 kilometers. So more. <laughs> they go faster yeah. than that. Uh, right. So, I mean, just just crazy. I mean, that, that is fast. They're built for speed. Like you said, torpedoes, and then, like I mentioned earlier, uh, their trends, their their fins can lay down uh, in their back and just their shape overall. But with the bluefin having this muscular strength, they also have a really efficient circulatory system, right? Um, It's all tied together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they have one of the highest blood to hemoglobin concentrations among any fish. And so with that, they can get that oxygen to tissues quicker. So a lot of the muscling, it, it, it's there's two things looking at, at at the tuna that makes them so unique is that that red muscle that they mm-hmm. have. So when you see a tuna steak, it looks red compared to white fish. Right. So you have the muscling differences there. And then the warm bloodedness. So I think we need to kind of break it down. So looking at the musculature, right? So what mm-hmm. you say, high myoglobin? Hemoglobin, that gives that red? Yeah, they right. They have the highest blood to hemoglobin, right? Hemoglobin, remember, uh, helps. It's a protein with an iron base that oxygen is attracted to and will attach to. But bluefin tuna also have a ton of myoglobin. Mm-hmm. And so myoglobin, once again, is this oxygen-binding molecule. And tunas have far... A lot higher quantities of myoglobin within their muscles than most other fish. And because of that, this large abundance of myoglobin gives them the red, uh, the red coloring, natural coloring of their of their flesh or their mm-hmm, muscle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading like because the red muscling, you're gonna talk about their migration. So that helps them swim over great distances. Where the white muscling, so you think of, of of white fish, is for short bursts of speed. So when whenever you think of buying at the supermarket, buying certain types of fish, when it's white, those are fish. Those are you know reef fish and things that that don't need to swim great distance, but they need to be quick to evade being preyed upon. Right? Yeah, they're like sprinters. Yeah, it's just form versus function, you mm-hmm. know. And, so they have this this red muscling, and also they have. I think this was what was really fascinating. Again, is this warm bloodedness? They are mackerel, so mackerel type mackerel sharks, great whites, swordfish, tuna have warm blooded traits. Now, there's there's only one true warm blooded fish. It's the opa. So maybe we'll cover that at some point. Very very unique. 
Yeah, Chris, it's so funny you mentioned the opa. First of all, it's a beautiful fish. And I, uh, my first exposure to it uh, was last week. There was an article we can put in our show notes about a 100-pound uh, opa that washed up on shore on the Oregon coast in the Pacific Northwest mm. of the United oh, States. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, uh, yeah, like I said, it was 100 pounds. And yeah, it's beautiful. It's uh, got purple and orange and red orange coloring on it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was dead. Um, but it's not normally a fish that people see on shore because it's, uh, lives so far out and it's usually found in temperate and tropical waters. Yeah, no, we'll have to we'll have to look at covering that one because that they're just so unique. They're the only true warm blooded fish, meaning they keep their body temperatures above five five degrees Celsius above ocean temperatures. Because most fish, their body temperature matches the surrounding water. Right. Tuna, their warm blooded traits means they as they swim, their muscles produce metabolic heat. Mm-hmm. That's all a byproduct of anytime anybody exercises, you get hot because of your muscles working. And through a countercurrent exchange, which we've talked a lot about in this, this podcast, they can warm up their certain muscles and brain to maintain swimming at speed or speed up really quick. Right. Yeah. They're trying to keep warm these highly aerobic tissues. So mm-hmm, their brain, mm-hmm. their brains are very important. Eyes and skeletal muscles, of course, which help them swim really fast, stay warm. And so they're considered partially endothermic, which once again, just like yeah, I know. blew my mind. I, because yeah, so the bluefin tuna, for example, it can keep a core body temperature of around uh, 25 to 33 degrees Celsius or 77 to 91 degrees Fahrenheit. In cold water that might be like 6 degrees Celsius or 43 degrees Fahrenheit, too cold for me to be in. That's for No, sure. yep. <laughs> absolutely. 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 And so they do this through a complex close-knit series of arteries and veins that are like basically laid on top of each other. It's called the rite mirabile. I'm saying that wrong. Uh, But anyways, uh, what's happening in this rite mirabile, just to say it wrong one more time, (laughs) is uh, so venous blood that is like warm um, from all the metabolism of moving and just generating heat uh, by burning and burning calories for for lack of better terms, uh, that heat is transferred um, to the the arteries, the arterial blood uh, that's cold and oxygenated. And so they just, they lay really close to each other and they do this counter current heat exchange. And it's, it basically helps them keep their body temperature really warm. And especially these, uh, these complex arteries and veins are found more in the important tissues. Yeah. Rad, dude. That's like, that's like crazy. I mean, we, we see it like in like certain body parts, like testes and, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and mammals and things like this, but to have this like kind of throughout your body so you can keep your, I mean, there is no way that you, if you're in 43 degree Fahrenheit water as a mammal, as a human, forget right. about it. Oh yeah, it's just you know you, that's why we get hypothermic and die because we can't we can't. Mm-hmm. And then all the marine mammals have all the blubber to help insulate them and keep that heat in there. But yeah, bluefin tuna yeah. do not have a lot of fat. That's why they're highly prized and sought after, and they're still able to do it. Which to me was just 
a physiological feat, number one, for bluefin tuna in my book. Oh, it was amazing. And, you know, one of the things you said earlier was they have very large mouths when you talked about it. Mm-hmm. And that's be- that's because they need it to obviously being warm, have warm blooded traits. They need more oxygen. So they have larger mouths, a lot more uh, larger gills. So the way the gills work again is as that water washes over those capillaries, they pick up oxygen that's dissolved in water. Now, we breathe air that has oxygen that has 200,000 parts per million. So we breathe that in, our capillaries in our lungs absorbs the oxygen and you get carbon dioxide release. Well, for fish, water only has a concentration of four to eight parts per million. Much lower, wow. Mm -hmm. Very low compared to 200,000, four Mm -hmm. to eight. So that means fish need a lot of water washing over their gills to get enough oxygen to survive. So tuna have a lot more larger gills to absorb more oxygen to feed these muscles that are working very hard to swim across the world. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Like form to function. It's awesome. So fun. Now, my physiological feat number two, can you guess what that was? Uh, let me see. I, if I did, let me see. We did. No, what? Tell me. Migration. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, the behavior stuff. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. In bluefin tuna, it's been reported that they can cross the Atlantic Ocean in sixty days because they've been tagging them, and data has shown that these bluefin tuna will go back and forth, make several several migrations from the Eastern Atlantic to the Western Atlantic back again within the course of a year, which is just incredible. And then you have the Southern bluefin tuna. They spawn in uh, Northwestern Australia, South of Java, Indonesian area. That's the only place they're currently known to spawn. And then they travel South Some of them head down and around Australia to end up in the Pacific, and others head down Australia and then turn west towards the Indian Ocean and even can go as far as the Atlantic Ocean. Crazy. Tens of thousands of miles, uh, of course, for for breeding, spawning purposes, but then also for food and, of course, to like hunt uh, schools of small fish that they eat. So, but... It's 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 amazing, and that's why, as a species to conserve bluefin tuna, it really does take international efforts because they're not just found in one region, more or less. Like they can they cross oceans multiple times a year. That is incredible, and then that got me wondering. Well, once again, how how do they do this? Especially the spawning behavior. I'm super fascinated buy it. How how do they know to go to this one area if they're the Atlantic bluefin tuna, this the Mediterranean. That's their main spawning grounds. And how if they're hanging out on the east coast of North Carolina or Florida. Mm-hmm. And then okay, it's that time of year again. I guess I better head all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, which is not I like know. a huge target if you if you look at the globe, right? No. Uh and and they make it there and they spawn and then they head on out. They head back, they head back um, west into the Western Atlantic. And so 
it's just it's just from a behavioralist point of view, it was blowing my mind. So of course I did some deep dives and like how do they migrate? What are they doing? And the cliff notes are we're not entirely sure how these <laughs> It's like sea turtles. I totally, (laughs) yeah. Once again, like they're smarter than humans. They don't mean, you know, I mean, here I am. I'd be like lost without my GPS, right? I I mean, there's a funny, um, like a funny meme or maybe it was on the, or maybe I saw it on a funny show where the guy's basically following the GPS GPS into a pond. Go right, go right. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm following it. He tries right to the. the yeah, the that's uh, without giving away too much detail. That's John, just a little bit. Like he is <laughs> hardcore, like GPS, and I. I mean, I am too. I. I, I mean, I, I don't. I drove around the country uh, many years ago before GPS, and I had the old uh, map. The Atlas, the ro- was it yep. the Ran- Rand McNally? Is it? Yep, the, the, I had it too. The one yep. you could buy in a gas station for like seven bucks or something with every state in there. And so uh, then there was MapQuest, that was big time. And then of course now mm-hmm. everybody has it on their phone. Yeah. So I depend on it, but I still have a teeny tiny like sense of direction, just of north, south, east, west, and which oh we've been past this before and that kind of thing. Or if I go there once, I like can totally get there again. But bless my husband's heart, not so much. Uh, and so, but anyways, just thinking about that, like how in the world do bluefin tuna do this, right? And so, Chris, researchers think they might have an idea of how these bluefin tuna migrate thousands of miles. And one of the explanations has to do with an organ called the pineal organ. Uh, it's also in fish, it's sometimes referred to as a third eye and the pineal organ is, it's really complex, uh, neural tissue that has light sensing neurons, um, which are similar to fa- uh, those that are found in our eyes. Um, and in tuna, they also have, uh, this region that's known as the pineal window And so on top of their head, uh, between the eyes, on the surface of their skin is this uh, patch of skin that's clear uh, or translucent in color, if you will. And so researchers think that what's happening there is this the translucent nature of the pineal window is letting light pass through. This organ uh, is helping communicate to the brain of how much light there is. And then of course the hormone melatonin, uh, which can, uh, help at least in humans help let let us know the photo period, right? Like, is it a long day or a short day or what's a full moon, these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And so researchers are, uh, getting information from Southern bluefin tuna, um, of course, off the coast of Australia and they put electronic tags on them and they're, collecting data on these round-trip migrations between anywhere from 5,000 to 16,000 miles. And with this uh, electronic tags, they're measuring like basically like the depth and the light information um, of what the tuna are doing when they're making these migrations. And so what they're discovering is that tunas have basically they're coming up higher towards the water at 30 minutes before dawn and 30 minutes after sunset. And then after that, then they, they descend deeper in the water and like travel deep in the water. And so these sharp descents and ascents 
at dusk and dawn are called spike dives. And so with these spike dives, researchers are speculating that the tuna are potentially gathering information about when it's dusk and when it's dawn and how much light there is and probably how the relation to the sun, remember? And um, in Leatherback, uh, researchers were starting to think that basically the positioning of the sun might have something to do with their ability to uh, migrate there really Mm -hmm. long distances. So, yes, this third eye or pineal window in the tuna, the bluefin tuna, is potentially playing a role uh, to help them get more information about where they're going and traveling these thousands and thousands of miles. But they don't know for sure. <laughs> always, always. Always. I, mean, they, I know. Yeah, it's, 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 it is crazy to think about. Like it's a big ocean and, and how they know to go to these areas. It, and Deep, dark. I mean, there's currents yeah. and things like this, but I mean, yeah. uh, and of course our, our, our predecessors use the stars to help navigate as well. So when people think that fish aren't, intelligent or feeling creatures. I mean, they might not be able to do algebra like humans, but in the same instance, uh, I could not get across the ocean back and forth. It would not be pretty. Right. So even with it, even with the the right equipment, I couldn't do it. Well, I mean, it's, they're starting out and coming back to it. You know, it's just like, it's crazy. It's, it's not just, Oh, they're out there swimming in the ocean. Okay. I'm, I'm free. I go wherever I want. It's they migrate and come back. You know, yeah, well, and what blows my yeah. mind too is we'll talk about their maturity, but okay, they let's say for instance the Atlantic bluefin tuna, it's born in the Mediterranean and then and it knows okay, hey, I need to head west and go towards the Atlantic and do all the stuff in the Atlantic, and then when they mature, like three to five years later, years after they were born and cross the ocean, somehow they know to head back to that small area of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not just, behavior. just fascinating. I mean, there's mm-hmm. great books out there like uh, that I need to get my hands on. I, I They have great reviews like um, What a Fish Knows and Do Fish Feel Pain, things like that. I um, This is uh, this, this month in the ocean, 2021, for me has definitely opened my eyes uh, on this podcast and I, I, I mm-hmm. need to know more about mm-hmm. fish and their behavior. No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, these fish dive up to 3,000 feet, 900 meters. They're deep diving. And, you know, we talked about what they already eat. I mean, apex predator, other fish, squid, herring, sardines. In young age, obviously, they eat zooplankton. And then as they move up, you know, they increase. Generally not preyed upon. I mean, adult sharks, you know, killer whales, other big fish can eat adult tuna. Obviously, when they're little, they're they're beholden to, to sure the yeah until see, they mature but, and get big yeah 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 but i mean what other facts i mean as far as like some of their behaviors and then also some of their reproduction what we know well bluefin tuna they display a schooling behavior and it's typically based on size and not necessarily species so for instance in a school with a bluefin tuna you may see other species of tuna in that school. And then when it comes to communication with bluefin tuna, of course, they have great eyesight. I mean, it's some of the best eyesight of any any bony fish. But they can also uh, communicate through chemical 
cues, which of course researchers are still trying to study as far as pheromones and things like this. And in the bony fish category, they have a well-developed lateral line. And so just briefly, the lateral line is sensory neurons or it's also considered like um, an organ that or neural mass that lies on the outside of a fish's skin, kind of like on the um, on the on the side lateral lines. They run along the side of the fish, and it's and it's a group of these like sensory cells, or they're called hair cells, and they're mechanosensors. So they can sense basically, uh, if you think of like mechanistic, so mechanics of the water and how the water is flowing. So it, it's basically another sense of touch more or less, mm-hmm. but uh, it, not the normal sense of touch that you and I have. It's a mechanoreceptor. So it's more like pressure and they can basically feel their surroundings about how the water is moving and if something's close to them or not close to them. So in some instances, it is another like superpower sense that fishes have and the blue Ventuna has this as well, and it's really highly developed. But it's this lateral line that helps them feel their way through the water and basically give it a lot of uh, aspects to their behaviors of how they move through the water, where they go, and things like this. And then just with reproduction, I mean, you're just looking at what mass spawning, typical of fish. Yeah. So, for example, the Atlantic bluefin tuna, um, it will migrate into the Mediterranean, Western Mediterranean area, uh, particularly near the Balearic Islands. And the female will produce up to 30 million eggs at a time, which is a lot. And of course, uh, the spawning occurs where the male will release semen into the water. And then once off spring hatch, the Atlantic bluefin tuna will then slowly migrate back into the Atlantic Ocean um, as they grow. And of the bluefin tuna, the Atlantic bluefin are pretty fast growing, uh, growing. So they start out as like these tiny, larva, like no more than a couple millimeters long. They weigh like a hundredth of a gram, which is just crazy considering they mm-hmm. get so big. Mm-hmm. But uh, within three, five, six years, they can be about one meter in length and they're considered sexually mature then. So, uh, so of the, of the bluefin tuna, the Atlantic, uh, bluefin have a, uh, one of the faster life cycles, but compared to other fish, it's, that's somewhat of a slow life cycle, right? Like they're not, they're not spawning or going back to their spawning grounds until they're three to five years old. And so the Southern bluefin tuna down there in um, Australia that, uh, spawns northwestern australia near indonesia is one of the only spawning areas known uh they don't reproduce until they're a decade or so old so i mean if you're catching them before they're able to reproduce that's that's a big problem right um and so we do also know the atlantic bluefin tuna that there is um another important spawning ground in the gulf of mexico so when we can find these areas, which is once again why we need more science uh, in uh, in fisheries, is because then we can help protect those areas, right, um, from pollution and from just traffic and just all sorts of things that can be an issue to spawning grounds. Um, and so with the with the southern bluefin tuna, we only know of that one in northwestern Australia near Java area. So. 
Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And I couldn't find any data on like, okay, if a, if a female bluefin tuna produces 30 million eggs, how many of them actually survive? Five into survive adult, into adulthood, but it's I mean, low I would imagine, it's, yeah. I mean, because yeah. I mean, if they're these poor little uh, baby bluefin larvae are only uh, they're tiny, <laughs> yeah, they're tiny. are so tiny. I mean, they're going to be a snack for you know any medium size, small to medium sized fish. So, and then so that's just why they have to be careful when they're catching them that they know the age and the size and all of that. No, yeah. I mean, it, it, reading all the stuff is not many of them make it to adulthood. I couldn't find percentages, but okay. a lot of them do get get picked off as they grow, mm-hmm. which just is you know is the, the the life cycle of the oceans. Before we jump into an organization, real quick, I, a question I have is: Do I eat tuna? I'm sure a lot of our listeners have that. And looking at some of the conservation organizations, it really is going to depend on the source. So I went and looked. I have sea lore tuna. I have three cans in, in my cupboard. I looked it up. It's all skipjack. So if you're going to eat tuna, skipjack is the most responsible and being fished at sustainable levels across the globe. Recommendations, bluefin tuna, no. In sushi, sashimi, and steaks, you should not eat bluefin tuna. I know, Unless you know it's from a farmed source, you know, I would support them. You know, especially wild bluefin tuna, absolutely, I would not eat them. They're just, they're, they're in deep, deep trouble. Big eye tuna, no. Again, sushi, sashimi, and steaks. Yellowfin, they're saying avoid, you know, because it's also in canned tuna, because across the globe, you know, they're in trouble. Albacore tuna, which is very popular in the United States, canned as white tuna. They're saying you should start avoiding that because it's starting to be overfished. Now, digging a little bit into this, in the U.S., there are fisheries that are fishing albacore tuna at sustainable levels. So that's more of a global view. Mm -hmm. So I would just, you can go online and look at the canned tuna you get, read up on the company, read up on the source. And if it's albacore, if you feel comfortable that they're fishing at sustainable levels, then feel comfortable buying it. But skipjack tuna is the number one tuna that you you can eat comfortably knowing it's being fished at sustainable levels. So again, it goes back to personal choice and things like that. But organizations, Angie, I mean, uh, you know, one focused on tuna. I mean, there's so many great ones out there working hard. Yeah, a World Wildlife Fund, WWF. Um, they're working with lots of other organizations to basically keep pressure on uh, fisheries and fisheries management that set all these international rules for tuna fishing. Uh, they want to make sure that there's 100% observer coverage on board for longline tuna fishing vessels. Because right now it's not a requirement for all the per scener types of fishing um, in the Indian Ocean. So they have a project called Project Electronic, um, where uh, it's helping them monitor all the tuna boats. And they're working with tuna tagging. And they've been also working on stopping overfishing uh, to help protect the Atlantic bluefin tuna and help the recovery of uh, the stock. We'll put their website up on our show notes, uh, but they have several projects there, uh, two of them being their improving management of the Eastern Pacific tuna fisheries. And another one is their accelerating tuna sustainability through the global 
FIP uh, Alliance for Sustainable Tuna. So uh, they're they're definitely on top of things and trying to help keep these endangered tunas um, protected and safe and monitored uh, and making sure that, yes, we have all these policies in place international in international waters, but are are they being followed, right? Uh, and so helping make sure that there's definitely transparency with the data. No, and I just think, you know, always vote with our dollars and, and that's the only way we get companies to, to change, right? That's Absolutely. the only way you're seeing mm-hmm. it now. You know, one of the things we'll talk about is, is the Amazon we've got to revisit there. You know, I'm, I'm seeing countries in Europe starting to want to ban products from Brazil, uh, beef per, particularly because of the catastrophic destruction of the Amazon. So same thing here with, with tuna, other fish that you eat and buy, do a little digging Look at, you know, NGOs that you trust and then some, you know, governmental ent- entity entities, you know, to, to be informed, an informed consumer and support World Wildlife Fund and these others uh, to make change. Absolutely. And Chris and I, of course, did a lot of research for this podcast because it's so interesting and we try to bring you the most accurate scientific evidence-based data. So Chris and I, as we do grow this podcast, with your help of sharing this information and also being um, kind of a collective collaborative unit, uh, we've had uh, definitely uh, people reach out to us and give us the name of experts. So I would love to interview somebody who knows a lot more about aquaculture or fish farming Mm -hmm. than uh, Mm -hmm. Chris and I do uh, uh, to get their opinion on it, on which species it's good for and what the pros and cons and things like this. So And please make sure to share this episode and uh, tell your friends and family about it. Give us a like on uh, Facebook, Instagram, things like this. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay tuned. You know, as we transition from the ocean, we're going back to land, but we will definitely be revisiting the ocean here in the, in the next few months, obviously. Because I know. So I, I know. For, uh, for all of you uh, uh, budding um, scientists out there, I'm thinking, man, I should have done fish sciences. Like fishes, they are so cool. I'm just, their physiology is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. But stay tuned for that. And thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.